Are you a scaling SaaS founder? Ready to make the leap from leading a team to leading an organization? Join us each week as we refill your think tank with actionable tips and strategies from great business minds you know and those you don't know yet. This is SaaS Fuel with your host, five-time entrepreneur, SaaS founder, and globetrotting adventurer, Jeff Maines. Welcome back to the Sassfield Podcast, where luxury isn't defined as having a diamond-studded teacup. I'm your host, Jeff Maines. I hope you to be SaaS founders like you scale from seven figures, which is good, to eight and nine figures, which is outstanding. Together, we supercharge revenue growth, create premium valuation, and craft a business you're proud of and a life of impact and freedom that you love. Well, I am back home from Hawaii. Got a, a little bit crazy last week. We came back uh, kind of toward the end of last week. And I'm sure you heard about and have seen that the fires in Maui and, and some on the big island as well. Maui, completely devastated. If you want to help, check out hawaiicommunityfoundation.org uh, or Red Cross. Both are on site and very involved in the day-to-day -day relief efforts, both outstanding organizations. We'll link that in the show notes whitecommunityfoundation.org, and of course, the, the Red Cross. But on a more personal note, I mean, we had a great time when we were there, did a fair amount of diving, and visited every single part of the islands, uh, high, low, volcanoes, uh, you know, ocean, like I said, a lot of diving. Uh, mentioned before being on top of the world's largest mountain, uh, the stars, volcanoes, steam vents, lava flows, there's incredible diversity there as well. The Big Island itself, 11 of the 15 different climate zones just right there on the island. And I didn't know that before. I, mean, I assumed it was all like green and tropical. And But it's there's desert, there's grasslands, there's rainforest, mountains, snow. I mean, who would think like snow in Hawaii? Uh, it's, it's unreal, but it's extremely beautiful, but very, very diverse. Uh, I added a video on social about 10 surprising things I learned about Hawaii as well. So that's kind of fun. Uh, as I said before, manta rays were at the top of my list for this trip, uh, kind of behind Pearl Harbor, North Shore. Wanted to go see some lost filming locations where they shot some Jurassic Park stuff, you know, a few others. And on our first night dive, looking for manta rays, not a single one. I, I don't know where they were, but they weren't around. They're off doing something else. I don't know what. And so it's like, okay, well, we tried. And it was a great night dive. You know, super, super dark. No moon. And so it was extremely dark under the water. Uh, lots of critters coming out. So really, really good. It was a great night dive. But not really exactly what we'd hoped for. And over the, the weekend, it was earlier in a week. And over the, the weekend, we heard that eight manta rays showed up. And so it's like, okay, well, should we try again? And just looking at the schedules, you, you can't dive and fly in the same 24 hours. Uh, you can't fly after diving for uh, 24 hours. So we really kind of had one small window. And it's like, you know, should we try again? And the answer is, well, of course, if they're going to be there. But yeah, they're wild animals. And I've been doing wildlife photography for years, and it's extremely unpredictable. And you get skunked a lot. It requires extreme patience, a little bit of luck, and working really, really hard to be in the right place at the right time. You know, you have to get the gear to work, and then it's, you know, getting that one in 1,000 shot. You know, no exaggeration. One in 1,000 is a great image, and one in 25 is, is pretty good. Uh, but you shoot a lot of things, and it's like, well, that that's not great. So there's a, you know, a lot of challenge around doing that. So you spend a lot of money, endure a bunch of discomfort, and don't get the results that you want. 
Yeah, it sounds a little bit like entrepreneurship and leading organizations. Uh, you know, extreme patience, a little luck, working really, really hard to be in the right place at the right time. And then, you know, dealing with disappointment and continuing on until, you know, those, those moments happen. And, you know, you get that one in a thousand moment when it all comes together and you're like, yes, totally worth it. And so the big question, should we try again one day before we leave 24 hours to dive flight? It was, it was a squeeze. I mean, you know, it was, it was literally, we're going to get off the boat and 24 hours later on a plane. Uh, but you know, that's what founders do, right? I mean, we, we squeeze, we're, we're right there. And if it didn't work, it's like, all right, one more try. And so, you know, taking the entrepreneurial spirit, we did. So second night dive, last chance, you know, it, it's either this or, you know, we missed it, but if nothing else, we tried. And I think that's something just kind of carry forward with the entrepreneurial spirit is I'm going to give it a hundred percent, take every possible opportunity. And, and if I strike out, so be it. There, there's nothing more I could have done to make it happen. So second night dive and there were mantas everywhere. 22 of them showed up. It was insanity. Uh, I'll post a video of that on social as well. Uh, our final two dives that night were actually the best of the entire trip by far. I mean, eagle ray, manta rays, sharks, eels, scorpion fish, nudibranchs, garden eels, squid, fish everywhere. I mean, it was just, it was mind blowing. And so glad that, uh, that we tried again and that one in a thousand moment. And, and it doesn't always work that way. And I get it. Sometimes you go and you give it everything you got and, and you strike out and, and I've been there, yeah, but this is one of those times where everything just came together, worked really hard to be in the right place at the right time. And, and it worked out and it was incredible. And, and I love that. So, you know, but if, as an entrepreneur, if you're in one of those spots where you're doing all that you can, you're spending cash, maybe not getting the results you want, maybe feeling a little bit skunked sometimes, keep on going, try again. I mean, continue to put yourself in the right place at the right time. Set yourself up for success. Gather intel. Look for a fresh approach. You know, quit those best practices uh, that, that are not getting the results that you want and do things the way that you think they should work. You know, find out what's working for other companies in a similar place to you. Find out what's working now, not what worked six months ago or a year ago or 10 years ago or back in the 90s. You know, what is working right now and capture that one in a thousand moment in your business. Now, our founder today did that. Uh, she built a business where others said it was impossible, can't be done, won't work. And she didn't listen to any of that. She did it anyway. She did it her way and is rocking a thriving business because of it. So if you want to capture those one in a thousand moments and know what's working for other B2B SaaS founders today, check out today's sponsor champion leadership group. It's the ultimate resource for SaaS founders and C-suite executives to continue to develop themselves, scale their companies and never walk alone on the journey. Supercharge revenue by leveraging time-tested SaaS growth principles, toolkits, playbooks, frameworks designed to help you scale ARR from seven to eight to nine figures. Collaborate with an elite network of SaaS visionaries, celebrate wins, and rally to help lift up those maybe feeling a little skunky. Confidently take that right next step that turns into a quantum leap of profitable growth, premium valuation, and freedom. Learn more at championleadership.com. Last week, both episodes, we celebrated 100. Really excited about that. Multiple interviews with SaaS founders, guests that I had at, at different events. So we did those live at events and so much fun. 
And we had some return guests as well, giving their number one tip for SaaS founders. It was so much fun. Did the intros uh, in Hawaii, made a lot of connections over there. And so if you missed it, go back and check it out. Uh, it's, it's actually, I think it's best on our YouTube channel. We have founders from Scotland in kilts, founders with pink hair, and, and a couple of them in suits. You know, all three of those are very different for the SaaS space and different from each other. And I love that diversity. And across the board, what they all have in common is that they're all building amazing SaaS businesses and positively impacting clients in their own unique way. I really love that. So if you missed either of those episodes, go back. We talk about the, the future of SaaS and really getting their perspectives on you know where they are today and, and what the future looks like. It was so much fun. 100 episodes is our episode 99 and 100 last week. We called them both 100. So if you missed those, go back and check them out. Lots and lots of fun. I think we had a total, uh, I want to say 12 or, or maybe 15 guests, something like that. Uh, plus some of the, the previous guests are probably 20 overall. It was so much fun to put together. And our team did an absolutely incredible job. My guest this week is impacting clients in her own unique way as well. And like I said, it was one of those things of being told, oh, that'll never work. You can't do that. So she just disproved them all and did it anyway. Casey Golden is the founder and CEO of LuxLock, a consumer-centric commerce experience platform that merges digital and physical shopping experiences into elevated brand experiences. LuxLock serves premium and luxury brands, bringing them into the digital age. So think about this. High-end brands, like think about that, the highest-end brands, they rely on super personal, exclusive shopping experiences, right? And e-commerce is the polar opposite of that. It's like as impersonal as you could possibly get. But what? What if you could deliver that super personalized experience like a luxury brand digitally? Think about that. And that is what Casey and LuxLock do. I mean, it's just like mind-blowing. It's like, how do you take those two worlds and put them together? And Casey is a disruptive industry thought leader advocating for a more humanized internet by augmenting talent to scale-on-demand personalization, on-demand personalization, without sacrificing consumer privacy or denying luxury brands their foundational DNA of that high-touch experience. It's pretty epic. Welcome a two-time tech founder, startup advisor, speaker, and advocate for women in technology who is guiding enlightened, super-exclusive brands into digital transformation, Casey Golden. Hey, Casey, welcome to SaaS Fuel. Thank you, Jeff. I'm super stoked to be here and talk a little bit it's about SaaS. pretty awesome. I mean, you, you do SaaS differently than many other companies and that it's not your typical e-commerce. Tell me about that. Yeah. So um, I, we sell our software to luxury brands. They're typically anywhere from a billion to 20 billion in sales a year. So they're very large accounts. Um, and our industry, really in the retail tech space to service them, a lot of them are professional services companies. Um, there's a lot of positives and drawbacks. I kind of took the best of both worlds and kind of created our own a business model that allowed us to do more of the good stuff and less of the icky stuff. So we we really focused on having a SaaS model, um, but it couldn't just be one SaaS fee for sure. one account. There'd be way too much money on the table <laughs> or that SaaS fee would be ridiculously priced. <laughs> 
um, because not every brand is exactly the same. So, um, you know, we do charge a monthly SaaS plus it compounds by um, locations. And then we, um, then we go ahead and take a 5% rev share. So if they're making money using our software, we're making money. If we see an opportunity to make more money, they're making more money. So we're just going to build the software and want to get it to production as soon as possible to do things like reduce returns, sell more products, increase happiness, anything that's going to help move those sales KPIs is beneficial to the brand and it's beneficial I to us. I love that goal so, alignment. That, uh, that when they're successful, you're successful. I think that that makes a lot of sense. Yes. In a previous life, I sold ERP systems. So it was like, here, buy this $10 million piece of software. And I wanted, I need three <laughs> desks in your office for the next four yeah, years. It's kind of the opposite <laughs> model, right? We're, we're going to go camp out and, and continue to extract dollars. And, and if you're successful or not, eh, not a problem. Not a problem because right. we're still building and uh, we have no idea what we're building because we don't have a vision for the future. We're just coming up with stuff randomly to that keep our desk like in our office. Yeah. And I just couldn't work. Okay. I'm like, I like my friends that work at the brands. Um, I thought when I moved to the software side of the retail industry, that I'd be able to solve all the problems. And that's kind of where I learned that those aren't the problems they're trying to solve. They don't want to solve the problems. They want to get paid to think about the problems. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, very, very different. So when we talk <laughs> about luxury brands, you know, what does that mean? I mean, how does it work and what what is a luxury brand? At the end of the day, the only luxury really is time, right? So you're saving time, you're earning time, you're getting value for your time. So the way we we kind of look at that is luxury brands don't compete on price. They compete on experience. So if the only factor of a consumer buying a product is how much it costs, they're probably not a luxury brand, right? Because you're not price comparing. And so that could be a $200 pair of jeans that are made in the U.S. instead of made in somewhere else. It could be a $60 ponytail holder. It can be $65 shampoo and conditioner because... You can buy shampoo and conditioner for 99 cents or you can spend 70 to $100 on it. So it's not that the shampoo and conditioner is $1,000. It's just out of the market. It's probably not going to be on Amazon. The brand probably wants to know who their customer is. And a lot of times, all of these premium and luxe business models have commission-based or compensate compensation of uh, commission salespeople. Very so, different model. Yeah, you are earning commission for that sale. And so it's more important for the relationship between the customer and their sales associate than it is for them to run an ad. So when we think about luxury brands like that, I mean, most of the sales have traditionally have been done in person. You go to a store, it's, it's, a, it's a big deal. How does that translate online? I mean, how do they do e-commerce? Yeah. So e-commerce has been a big DNA struggle for the last, you know, decade or so is they were very late to adopt e-commerce because it really stood for everything that they were against on a DNA level. (laughs) Um, They did not want customers to have a self-serve process because it 
deleted the experience. And it was never about price. It was about the experience with the brand, a sense of belonging, being able to enjoy yourself and essentially enjoy your time. It wasn't just about was the buying experience. something. Um, it was really the experience. So, um, but 2018, 2019, luxury brands started adopting e-com. Um, what it looked and felt like has been the big right. question is how do you bring that brick and mortar experience that compounds every time you walk in over 20 years? How do you bring that online and how do you reconnect these sales associates to their customers digitally so that they can maintain their commission, maintain their relationship and still enjoy each other and still enjoy the brand. And that's really where we focused on building digital clientele system that went on the brand's e-commerce store so that they could provide live shopping services so that there was an additional sales funnel. You can do self-serve or you can go guided overall increasing the, the total traffic conversion in general. So it is really bringing that in-store experience online, like the, the guided. Yeah, because, you know, when you buy more of the premium products and you, you're working with a professional shopper, they're, they're kind of your editor. They're recommending items for you. You're not going to scroll through 2,300 black shoes. Somebody's just going to say, Hey, Jeff, nice to see you again. How was vacation? Um, Falls here. And they're just going to recommend two boots, pair of jeans, a blazer, four shirts, and get you set. You know, they're going to make that assumption to get you ready without you having to say what you want or what you're looking for. That just allows us to, our goal is just to design time well spent. I don't want it to be like our average time in chat is um, 18 minutes. And we love that. But a KPI for e-com to be 18 minutes means you have like a conversion rate problem or somebody (laughs) can't find something. Like it's not necessarily a good thing, but for us, we want to be able to hit that pause button, create an experience that results in a sale or just a happy customer. I think the biggest thing is e-com is all about that transaction. And if a, if a piece of traffic doesn't convert, it's bad. And in luxury, the goal is not to make the sale. The goal is to have a good time. And if you do a really good job taking care of your customer, the result is them buying something. Maybe today, maybe next week, maybe next month. But it's not about the transaction. It's about the relationship. And that's really interesting. So you have this this big mismatch between luxury brands and e-commerce. And you know, definitely different goals here, kind of what traditional e-commerce is. So you just decided to build a SaaS and jump right in the middle of it. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I yep. love that. How did you come up with the idea? I mean, how do you how do you take those two things and go, this is a bridge that that I can build? It was really difficult. Like there's a reason. There's a reason why live chat and messengers and SMS, there's a reason that they use affiliate marketing links. It's easy. Sure. It doesn't do the whole job, but it's easy. doesn't take a lot of tech for that. Right. (laughs) And so, but the experience lacks. And I, it definitely does. 
Yeah. I'm really not shopping with somebody. It's all delayed. You send me a link to a page. I'm still shopping by myself. And so we had the main goal was really how do I create a live selling environment that has two-way conversation happening with products between a constant relationship alignment, your salesperson, not random, not you going and having to start all over again every single time, right? Right. Just have that consistency. So we did end up building a new type of commerce messenger that is integrated with inventory and it's able to kind of do a lay down or outfit so that you can grab something that you own with something new, with something you wish listed and something that you've abandoned in your cart. So it's really about in luxury. I need to show up for Jeff in everybody else's model. They're showing up for people like Jeff. That's very different. It's very different. (laughs) Because it's literally just about you, your preferences, your wants, the way your relationships um, and your experience. It's not about everybody else like you. It's literally just for you. And so scaling individualized experiences is very different than personalized experiences. Um. So in order for us to create this um, sparkly little piece of magic that's going on these luxury brands e-commerce stores, we had to build an entire data platform for identity management (laughs) and a CRM system and a customer data platform and essentially unify all of these systems to have this hub to power individualized experiences, um, to mix products with people um, on the customer side and be able to roll it all together. So I kind of had to make a really big commitment up front that like, I'm quitting my job. I'm going to solve this for the next like five years before I get to go live. (laughs) So it kind of started back in 2005, 2006. I was like one of the first fashion bloggers trying to figure out how to make money online because nobody was affiliate marketing didn't really exist really. So um, how do you get commission on digital sales when you couldn't track a link? Yeah, you know, it, it really hard. It made it really hard. So I created something where I kind of took it out of like Willy Wonka, like the golden tickets. <laughs> <laughs> and so everybody had a code that if you entered the code at checkout, you didn't get a discount. It would be tagged that the order came from me. And then the brands all had a, a a ranking system that like the first order that customer would get their denim or like a t-shirt added to their order. Every, okay. every 25th order that came in for me, they'd have their denim doubled, you know? So we had this like system that like, nice. if you get my code at checkout, you might get a surprise or you might not. <laughs> That's a brilliant way to do that. You know, if it doesn't exist, you create something, but you give them an incentive to do it. To yeah, I didn't want incentives to be discounts, right? Right. Especially growing up, my entire career, starting from like 18, my first real job I had 
was like gym memberships, which was commission. I moved out of the house and I started selling cars, all commission. So no salesperson wants to wake up and work for 30% off today. And that fits with the DNA of the companies as well, because they don't want to, they don't want their merchandise discounted. That's just, it doesn't fit with who they are as a brand. No, I mean, the Prada handbag's not on sale, like ever. (laughs) Ever, right. (laughs) (laughs) So there is no discount code. There has to be some other reason to like be able to nurture that customer or provide an experience or something, level of excitement or thank you or gratitude that was just not attached to a discount. That's a really, really cool concept. I feel like I'm, I'm from like Mars or something when I'm talking to people because they're like, (laughs) what do you mean? You just want to sell the product full price and like, go figure. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I want to sell the product full price and make the customer happy doing it. Right. Right. That's really funny. I mean, the e-commerce typically it's a much more of a marketing play. And, you know, you're talking you know, about the things that you built, identity management and, and sales. So how is it different with a luxury brand in, in marketing versus sales? And how do you balance that? So personally, I'm not a big fan of any marketing. But <laughs> I love it, controversial statements like that. That's great. Yeah, an email address And the email address is not a relationship. So we'll just leave that there. <laughs> but the fact is, is that it works. It's operationalized. It works. It converts. Who am I to tell you to stop doing it? I'm just saying, can we do it for new customers? (laughs) Can we treat our current customers who we're supposed to be friends with? Can we just provide a higher level of hospitality and really focus on hospitality instead of acquisition? They are already your customer. So we can get to know them. We can have two-way conversations We can surprise and delight them. We can call them on the phone. We can send them to dinner. We can get them U.S. Open tickets. They're they're in. So once they're in, can we at least try to start treating them like family in a little bit, you know? So I kind of go in with brands saying, don't change anything that you're currently doing. Just keep doing it. Um, I call it a push strategy. So push marketing. Um, and then we're coming in with Luxlock and saying, mm-hmm. we're going to build out your pull strategy. I so like the that. pull strategy is getting people to camp out of your, your store three days before a new product's released. People putting, placing an order nine months before they're going to get a delivery for it, being offered to buy something and invited to purchase something and kind of like, how do you get your customers to just come to you without you having to pay for them to click. And so um, that's kind of how we've been working with our clients is building out the pull strategy for digital because their in-store marketing is all pull. How do you get people to walk through the door? Right. Because you can't, you don't really pay somebody out there. You know, there's nobody in a Google costume on the corner in 34th Street (laughs) saying like, literally like, hey, I'll give you like a dollar 14 if you walk into Macy's today. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Like you have to have that pull and and create that pull and that demand. And we just don't do it online. But it's proven to work. So why, why did we just throw it away? We know it works. 
and it doesn't cost as much money, <laughs> right? So how can SaaS founders use that same kind of concept instead of just the push marketing? How can we pull people to our brands? How do we come become attractive as brands? I think we, I think one of the best examples I had is when I talk to somebody who's in email marketing, it's their job to send out a million and a half emails on a day and to segment. And you spend eight hours doing it at work. But then when you go home and you open up your personal Gmail, you curse and unsubscribe and block and you're frustrated as a consumer. And I think we just kind of need to start thinking about what I'm doing on the business side. Would I actually want this? Is there value? And I think yeah. just asking why, because on the luxury side, why is always number one. When, why? Why do I want to call this person? Why does this person want to come to me? Um, why do people use the word love when they describe these companies, right? It's very rarely somebody says, oh, I like Valentino. Right, right. I love Valentino, right? Like they get love. And I think we can kind of just think of whatever we're building. Will my customers use the love word instead of the like word? Or be able to even say our name. I, mean, I don't, you can't even spell most of these tech companies. Anymore. <laughs> uh, they get more and more strange. They're more and more strange, Yes, but it's kind of that brand identity of saying, I like this app or I like this tool. It saves me time. It's my go-to. If I had to turn 10 tools off tomorrow, is your tool going to make the cut? And that it doesn't have to be rational. And I think that's one of the biggest things is um, engineers seem to be quite rational. Sure. <laughs> Luxury industry is not rational at all. <laughs> I think most buyers are not rational. Uh, they, they make emotional decisions and then they rationalize that decision with logic. Yes. They, they, they make that decision because they love the brand or they love the, the tool or the salesperson or the relationship. Yeah. And so I just don't think everything has, has to make sense. It just doesn't always have to make sense. Um, does it feel good? I mean, that, that kind of is fine. And so, I mean, I see a lot of A-B testing and a lot of these logical things, but sometimes we do things like we're a tech company, but sometimes we've done things just because it's prettier. <laughs> of course, because we wanted to. Yeah, we liked it. Yeah. Could I have done it? 15 hours ago and yeah, but the 15 hours gave us something prettier. It doesn't, yeah. there's no KPI to it. It's just prettier. <laughs> 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 um, and so, um, yeah, my engineers love me, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, I think that there's just a lot of the, a lot of the SaaS companies, they all look the same. Their websites look the same. Yes. Um, they're beautiful. They're very clean. They're very easy to understand. Um, 
our company doesn't look like a SaaS company at all online. That's 100% we right. We don't even look like a tech company. No, no, you actually look like a luxury brand. I mean, you go there and you think, you know, what, what am I buying? It's not software. It must be a car, must be a $10,000 handbag. I mean, it's, you know, something, something big. It's something different, you know? And yeah. um, because when I looked at all the websites at the end of the day, I pull up our five competitors. We all use the same words. It's the same narrative, but we all do completely different things. And we solve the problems from very different perspectives. Our infrastructure is different. How we sell a product is different. How users use our product is different. And I'm like, if I just build a software website, I'm just contributing to the confusion. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and so we went with something that looks like the brands that we serve and spoke to their business using their words, not the technical SaaS words. Um, we don't use a lot of the same terminology or vocabulary. Um, we speak our clients um, language and um, we've gotten a lot of compliments from it, which is great. <laughs> but um, it's mainly like investors and advisors and, and things of that nature, like from the tech side, they're like, oh, you need to change your website. I'm like, our customers are fine with our website. <laughs> yeah. It's not a problem for them. Um, we're still getting the inbound because they went to four other websites that all sounded the same. And then we just talked to them the way they like to be spoken to. And that's part of their world. And, you know, we got a partner request. We don't have enough volume to say that it's not working yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, that that's a luxury business, right? Because if yeah. you were going to be just normal e-commerce, then it's all about, you know, showing we've got this giant TAM. Every every brand on earth is a potential prospect, but but you've really limited to, to you know, a very specific market, which I think is smart. Yeah, we, it's really, you can either be everything to somebody or nothing to everyone. And we went with, we want to be everything to somebody. There's ways that we feel that we can scale down market with like IOT and on-demand data and <clears throat> different ways to, to power smart tables and you can use it in Gap and you can use it in a recommendation engine on, on, on Azara, but that's not our go-to-market and that's not our goal. Our goal is how do you take care of the person that's one of the hardest people to make happy, that has the highest level of demand? And we know how to do that really good. You know? I think that's brilliant. And I'm like, I can win there. And it, once I can operationalize the most difficult customer base, everybody else is easy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Once you nail that, it makes the uh, everything else really, really easy. Everybody wants to be treated like a VIP. Everybody wants to be treated beautifully. Everybody wants those individualized experiences rather than mass personalized. You know. Um, but I can't really build that to an audience that doesn't expect it and doesn't care because it's a smaller price point. It's not that important. True. So I'm like, we have to build for the people who have expectations that have experience being treated that way and being served. Um, 
and sell things that are ridiculously priced <laughs> because the ROI is there. If you spend money to sell something that costs $5 million or $3,600, it matters that it was done right. You know, and so it was a lot easier for us to kind of just take that sliver and say, we're going to be a vertical SaaS for the entire luxury industry, handbags to kitchen sinks. <laughs> and I think that that's a really interesting take and, and really smart to focus in like that. Something you mentioned earlier was just about uh, repeat purchasing. And so you're really selling to, to one and having that relationship and then tracking that over time, which is really unique. Um, you, you don't see that. I mean, SaaS or not SaaS. You don't see that. Normally, e-commerce is very transactional. And so it's, you know, maybe you buy some things, maybe they send you some emails and promotions and that kind of thing, but they don't keep track of how much you spent, like lifetime purchases. And that's one of the things that you mentioned, repeat purchases. Yeah. And how do, how do they use that uh, to build more loyalty? Lifetime value is one of the big drivers in luxury because the lifetime value is very, is generational. So it is your grandmother, your mother, you, your kids, that brand equity goes through the family, which is very interesting, right? Like it they're wired by birth. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what they get used to. And it's not like, oh, my grandma shopped there, so I don't want to go there anymore. But that's something that is, is very different in luxury than maybe in the traditional retail. And so really tracking the lifetime value of a customer, um, traditional e-com, you know, it's great if you can get that customer to buy four, four, four times a year. And if that's four times a year and you're looking at like $23 basket or $125 basket, it's a lot different when I'm looking at this customer spends $250,000 a year with us. That is very different. It's and multiple years. For 20 years. We were so there are there for- special things that you get based on lifetime spend? I mean, if you're tracking that? There is. Level up? <laughs> <laughs> so um, the more and more that you shop with your sales associate, essentially the, the better they get to know you and they can start anticipating your needs and they know how to spoil you and what makes you happy. So um, whether or not that is getting, making sure you have U.S. Open tickets, um, helping you get a tea time at a golf course while you're traveling, um, sending you flowers on your birthday, making brunch reservations for you and your daughter when she graduates from like high school or college. Um, and then you come shopping because it's like a celebratory moment. I think that's one of the big things is a lot of times the moments that you're meeting your customer are really are celebratory because you're really happy and you're celebrating something or you're really sad because you just like broke up with your boyfriend, you got a divorce, you changing, changed jobs. Um, so it's very stressful or it's very happy. And essentially, you're there at very vulnerable moments in your customer's life. And so you just build relationships, like very strong. And so you can get away with an order being late. It's not the end of the world because we forgive our friends. 
right? Yeah, yeah. It, it's more about the relationship than the <laughs> than the transaction or the the thing themselves. The thing itself. Yeah, and so um, one of the problems we look to solve is is really LTV is not being aggregated across different countries and between mm. online and in store all the time. None of these systems really communicate to each other. So um, the luxury brands, some of them have uh, JVs. So like in Asia and the Middle East, those the brand, the retail store there might be a joint venture. So it's not 100% connected back to the brand and the systems. And then in maybe Latin America, um, the store there is a franchise. So it may so, that, that those purchases would not be reflected then back at home base. They're not being tracked back, and that can no. impact your aftercare services, your warranty services, your authentication, um, and your LTV, and whether or not what you're getting for holiday this year. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because if you're spending money off grid, the customer doesn't know that there were they just made a purchase off grid. Right. You right. have no idea. You took a cruise, you got off the cruise, you walked into your favorite brand store, you bought something, and then you go home and you're like, where's my purchase? I need this fixed or I need this repaired or the sales associate sees you walking with something like, when'd you buy that? You know, and you have to go track down this information to get your file transferred. And it's just not very scalable. And so we just see it as I'm the same person, whether or not I'm in New York and LA or in London, it's the same brand. Why can't everything just sink? <laughs> right, right. And it shouldn't be the customer's responsibility to, to figure that out or, or even pay attention to it. It should just work. It should just work. You know, if you buy something here and then you get back home and you want to return it, it shouldn't make a difference. But because a lot of the systems are just very large, um, not really designed for direct-to-consumer experience, because these e-commerce stores are relatively new. Sure. So they haven't been live and integrated over the last 10 years necessarily. And I don't think some of the things that we did 10 years ago are really relevant today. And I think it's, it's interesting just because we do it now, do I really want to spend money building something to replace something that's already outdated? Can we just build what's new and like move forward? Yeah. You know, so you get into a lot of these conversations with um, having to build things for the sake of being able to turn something else off rather than building what you want to build <laughs> because it was already outdated. Like, let's just move forward to something cool. Um, we don't get to always, you know, necessarily do that because people, people don't like change. Right. Right. <laughs> What's been the biggest challenge in, uh, in building the company? <sighs> biggest challenge in building the company. I'd probably say being able to compete with the noise, like getting yourself out there. It's almost like all press is paid press. Everything costs money. <laughs> yes. Um, awards are paid for. Um, they're not necessarily based off of merit. Most people uh, don't know that, but that's a hundred percent right. I could have been on the top 10 list of so many things. And 
or in this like article that just was on business of fashion, five people messaged me, how come you weren't on there? I'm like, because I didn't pay to be in the article, (laughs) you know, people forget that it's, it's not merit-based. And so you have to raise enough or charge enough up front to kind of, you know, you're constantly in this, you know, chicken or egg scenario. And then you're trying, you know, you end up putting the cart before the horse because you're like building more stuff than you should have to, but you got to build it to keep going. If you're going to go customer, you need to build those revenue things. So you end up doing a lot more um, than being able to stay super narrow and focused to just attack a market. I feel you kind of have to just build alongside your customers that are paying you. So I'd say that, you know, there's a definitely a value in um, kind of going to market without um, venture capital. Definitely difficult for com- for just to compete, I guess you could say, right? Sure. Um, the second thing I think is, um, this isn't my first startup. It's my second. And this time I learned how to ask for help. <laughs> Brilliant. That's hard to do. It really is. It's so difficult. <laughs> it was really difficult um, because I worked on the on a side where I needed to know. You're expected to know. If you don't know, it was negative. If you need help, do you need this job? Should you have this job? Right. Because there's 60,000 people applying for your job every day, right? So it's just very aggressive that you had to, it was looked down upon if you asked for help. So you had to just do whatever you needed to, to figure it out. Phone a friend, call somebody, Google it, YouTube it, just say yes. Let me get it to you tomorrow. Then figure out how to deliver afterwards. (laughs) (laughs) And you just weren't able to ask people. And then this time I just like, I needed help. Like I can't build all of this by myself. Like I really need help. And um, it's amazing when you ask for help in the startup world, people roll up their sleeves and they come help you. Yeah. And they're just like, just tell me what you need. I got you. You know, and I've just been completely, I wouldn't be here if I didn't learn how to ask for help. (laughs) That's awesome. You know, so I think those were like kind of the two, two things, how to grow and enter a market when you don't, you have limited resources and then asking for help so you can get a lot more free resources. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> very, very smart. What about like operating systems, um, operations, and, and actually having structured processes? Is that something that uh, has made a difference? I don't know if it's made a difference. I mean, I come from corporate. <laughs> so um, I'm used to structure. Um, we're probably more structured in a lot of ways than a lot of other startups when it came to like finances, databases, customer experience, you know, over documentation. We don't iterate very fast because we're asking why, 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 why. I think the biggest thing is the learning how to do more things the SaaS way rather than the e-commerce way or the retail way or the enterprise software way, because retail doesn't use a lot of SaaS products compared to enterprise. And so trying to 
understand how SaaS founders are doing things, how they are able to operationalize and automate things faster using different tools that like, I literally never heard of them because I don't hang out with them. I'm hanging out with Microsoft retail and Oracle and SAP. And like, I'm not hanging out with SaaS companies because I need to build my friends and my partners with the rest of the software tech stack that my customers use. Sure. And so there was, there's just not enough time for a founder to have this many communities that they need to go to events and things. Um, so it's been really important to find more people that have worked and grown in SaaS companies to kind of learn from them on how they've scaled more things and made things just a lot more automated. So I think there's like a big benefit on what's already been discovered, but I don't think consumer brands in the startup realm, there's a lot for them to learn from like what SaaS software companies do from how they communicate, how they do their systems and organize things. Cause my notion looks completely different and I'm like, Whoa, 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 Whoa your layout's way better. Like, get over here. I'm ordering food. I'm buying a bottle of wine. Come spend like the evening with me and we're overhauling my notion. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. I love porting processes or, or ideas from one industry to another because we can learn a lot from each other. Are you familiar with the Medici effect? No. What is that? So the Medici effect is, uh, it's a book that I, uh, that I read and it really kind of talks about finding the intersection between two, um, unrelated industries. So it takes two people from like completely different industries and puts them together to try and find something to create innovation. And so Bain and Bain uses it on a regular basis. Like you become a consultant in your specialty for like two years Uh, When you come in and then you go to something unrelated to anything you know anything about um, and you go spend two years there trying to find something new to build something new. It's kind of um, how to manufacture innovation as essentially um, the goal. And it's by taking people out of their element and putting them in something completely unrelated to find the magic. And so I've always really felt I want to talk to people in fintech. I want to talk to people in SaaS. I want to talk to people that are in like insurance or regulation or cyber, whatever it is, has nothing to do with me, but I know that's where I'm going to find something that's going to make an exponential impact to me because I already know all this stuff in my space. And I'm like, eh, I took the good stuff already. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, where's the good stuff over here in other industries, you know, that I can learn from, I can take from, and I might find some, some type of new magic. I love that. We'll make sure and link that book in the the show notes, the Medici effect. It's really good. It's, it starts out pretty dry, but by the end of the book, I was just like, oh, I make sense now. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And, you know, thinking about taking, you know, processes or, or things that work well in, in uh, one place and another, we were talking before, and you mentioned a cookie-less world. So, you know, what would that look like if e-commerce adopted that from the luxury brands and created a cookie-less world? Yeah, so it's coming more and more into conversations about changing, being able to track across sites and because and, it all comes back to marketing. 
And how do I know, how do I personalize an experience to you if I don't know who you are? Um, so there's this level of, we need to understand who you are so that I can meet your expectations so that I can exceed your expectations or I can create something for you. But, um, right now, almost, almost everything is really wrapped around marketing versus sales. And so with LuxLock, we don't need cookies because you're able to have portability rights of your data. So That's you can big. go ahead and log into LuxLock across all these brands and bring all of your data with you because that's part of like GDPR compliance. You have ownership of your data and you're signing into the software to be connected to somebody you have an established relationship with. So there's the value there. I don't need it to market to you. I need it to do what I'm supposed to do, which is connect you to your sales associate and to personalize this on a one-to-one basis. So I'm super excited for a cookie world because I'm like, right? Like I got this. <laughs> But at the same time, there's a lot of models out there with affiliate marketing and affiliate links where how much is going to stay and how much is going to go? And do you have all your eggs in one basket? Because if you rely on affiliate marketing, is Google making money off of affiliate links? Last time I checked, they weren't. Right. So you have all your eggs in, in one basket and the people who provide this service to you don't make money off of it. I would personally be quite friend that like you're walking on the line. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but I find a lot of people aren't even thinking about a lot of the cybersecurity and all of the things that are happening on the tech side um, with compliance in the U S these are conversations that are very prevalent when I'm talking to customers in Europe or Latin America, but nobody's really talking about it here in the U.S. And it could literally change in like a week, you know? Sure. There's already Google's on some type of schedule. I think something by like Q1 or Q2 of next year, there's like another level of cookies going away. So I think that, if we just do the right thing, regardless of compliance, I think more brands would be ready for it, you know? And uh, yeah, marketing and sales are not the same. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're not. <laughs> it's a great conversation. Where can people learn more about you and about LuxLock online? Um, you can visit our website at LuxLock.com. The one that doesn't look like SaaS, like every other SaaS company out there. Yes. Love it. L-O-C-K. You can sign up for an account as a shopper. And there's a list of all the brands that use our software, which we update. We're updating daily right now. Like three brands just launched this week. Um, and you can use our software on those brands. And then you can find me on Twitter at Casey C. Golden. And then you'll get to shoot the shit with me. <laughs> Outstanding. <laughs> and we'll make sure and link all of that on the show notes. Casey, I've really enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you for being on SAS Fuel. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks again, Casey, for coming on the show and sharing your journey and insights. You know, in the luxury space, what better name is there than Golden, right? I mean, it's just like meant to be. 
But Casey, you know, you have an amazing business and I love that you're uniting the, the digital and physical spaces together. You know, it's not like crazy futuristic VR, but it's personable. It's totally customized and relationship driven. It's bringing, bringing, you know, humanizing commerce online, which I think is really, really cool. And Casey didn't name drop too much during the episode, but I know some of the brands that she works with and they are super, super high end. So think of the high end brands that, you know, like, yes, those. And honestly, some of those that she's working with even make those look pretty common. Such a great model. And, and I have to say hats off to the forward thinking luxury brands who have embraced the concept of adding a digital experience to their world. It's a real differentiator in the market. And Luxlock keeps the experience super premium. So if you think about luxury brands, they really want to be you know, at the top. They want to be the differentiated. They want to be the forward thinking. They are the trendsetters. And the ones that are embracing this digital transformation, the digital experience online, like with Luxlock, they are really showing that they're not only leading in the, the luxury space, leading in their markets, that they are a premium brand, but they're really showing that they are not only that, but they are a thought leader in that space. They're a thought leader in, in e-commerce. They're a thought leader among all of the luxury brands. And I think that's something that really differentiates them and takes them to an even higher level than some of the other ones who are, are really just pushing back against technology. So I think that's really, really interesting. So hats off to you. If that is you and that's your world, uh, you know, you should give yourself a, a pat on the back because you're really setting yourself up as a thought leader in the luxury space as well. So congratulations for that. You can learn more about Casey and LuxLock at LuxLock.com. That's L-U-X-Lock, LuxLock.com. And as always, all links, highlights, resources, and full show notes are available at sasfuel.com. Be sure to check out our episodes and shorts on YouTube as well. Just search for SASFuel. You can always subscribe or follow us for podcasts, for YouTube. Everyone who subscribes this week gets a personalized shopping experience where you can buy me anything you want from any luxury brand of your choice. Right? Shouldn't that be the other way around? I don't know. <laughs> subscribe anyway. Love that. Well, join us next time on our SaaS Fuel Expert Series for Harry Spate, founder of Selling with Dignity and host of the Sales Made Easy podcast. Who could use some sales made easy, right? Harry brings insight into how to succeed in hyper-competitive sales environments, which I think we're probably all feeling right now. Next Tuesday, our founder is Bish Smear, founder and CEO of Enigmatic Smile. It's a fintech that has cracked the code on customer loyalty programs that actually create loyalty. So I will see you next time. And as always, enjoy the journey. Thanks for listening to SaaS Fuel. Full show notes for each episode, which includes a summary, key takeaways, quotes, and any resources mentioned are available at sasfuel.com. Be sure to follow and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're enjoying the content and getting value from these episodes, please leave us a rating and review at ratethispodcast.com slash sasfuel. We'll be sure to read these out on future episodes.